WDBM East Lansing. 89 FM. The Impact. And now, Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. Good evening, I'm Abby Newton, and this is Impact Exposure 89FM. I hope you all enjoyed your 4th of July weekend and celebrated accordingly with fireworks, barbecues, and friends. Uh, Today on the show, we are breaking down the political conflict that has been brewing in Egypt. Also, we talk with a local cello player, and we will explore a new initiative that is coming to Lansing. But first, let's talk about the news. As some enjoyed their holiday weekend, others were left devastated by a series of crashes. A plane flying into San Francisco crashed on Sunday, killing two 16-year-old girls. A man was actually filming the landing, and here are his reactions. Look at him. Look at that one. Look how his nose is up in the air. Oh, my God. Oh, it's an accident. Oh, you're filming it, too. Oh, my God. Oh, Oh, The airlines identified the victims as Wang Lin Jiai and Yi Meng Wan. The two were part of a student group from Jingshan Middle School in China's eastern province, according to Chinese media reports. The New China News Agency reported that dozens of students and teachers from various parts of China were aboard the flight that crashed on Saturday. Many of the students and teachers on board were going to summer camps in the United States. Now, Asiana Flight 214 originated in Shanghai and stopped in Seoul before flying to San Francisco International Airport, where it crash-landed, killing the students and injuring more than 180 people. The bodies of the two teenage victims were found on the runway, said San Francisco Fire Chief Joanne Hayes-White. It was not clear whether they had been pulled from the plane or ejected. Another crash also happened in Canada this weekend. The runaway oil train ran into a Quebec town early Saturday. According to USA Today, the air brakes had been disabled by firefighters who were extinguishing a blaze on board 90 minutes before the accident. So far, 13 people have been declared dead, but 40 are still missing. The train exploded after it traveled 8 miles down a sloping track and derailed at 1 a.m. on Saturday. In Lansing News, Common Ground Music Festival kicked off last night with a performance by Bare Naked Ladies. It takes place annually in downtown Lansing along the banks of the Grand River in Aidero Riverfront Park. The festival features high performers in many genres. The outside venue also adds to the experience. Now, Impact is there reporting all week, and you can check out our website to see the best performers, the latest reactions, and interesting interviews. And I thought we could go a little bare naked to celebrate the start of the festival. It's been one week since you looked at me Cocked your head to the side and said I'm angry Five days since you laughed at me Saying get back together, come back and see me Three days since the living room I realized it's all my fault but couldn't tell you Yesterday you'd forgiven me But it'll still be two days till I say I'm sorry Hope you never watch a hood wink Cause I make you stop think You'll think you're looking at Aquaman I summon fish to the dish Although I like the shell I swiss I like the sushi Cause it's never touched a frying pan Hot like wasabi when I bust rhymes Speak like Leanne rhymes Because I'm all about Campers got the mad hits. You try to match wits. You try to hold me, but I bust through. Gonna make a break and take a bake. I like a sink and they can shake. I like vanilla. It's the finest of the flavors. Gonna see the showcase and you'll know the vertigo is gonna go. Cause it's so dangerous. You'll have to sign a waiver. Can I help it if I think you're funny when you're mad? Trying hard not to smile, though I feel bad. I'm the kind of guy who laughs at a funeral. Can't understand. 
Bare Naked Ladies again. Common Ground Music Festival is this week. You can check out our website for more information and updates on the festival. Now, also this past week, there has been a lot of news surrounding the conflict in Egypt. The Middle East has a rich history of violence and political turmoil. I sat down with Michigan State University professor Russell Lucas. He is the associate professor of Arabic studies and the co-director of global studies in the arts and humanities at Michigan State. So first off, what do you make of the situation in Egypt as of right now? Well, as of right now, what's happening is that as of last week, uh, the military um, removed the president, uh, Mohamed Morsi, who had been elected uh, a year earlier. And that was following the um, military removing the previous president, Hosni Mubarak, in February of 2011, which is part of kind of the larger Arab Spring. And Egypt being the most populated Arab country, the largest Arab country, uh, and kind of in the middle of the Arab world, was looked at as kind of one of the the main event of the Arab Spring, although there's lots of other things going on. And what was remarkable about the uh, January 25th revolution, taking the date it began, that re- uh, removed President Mubarak about 28 days later, is how generally peaceful it was, that the protesters, millions of people massed in downtown Cairo and in cities across Egypt, and demonstrating and asking for President Mubarak to step down. And eventually the military uh, pushed him out, even though he was a general previously, uh, he had been president since 1981. And that this revolution was generally peaceful, aside from some violence by supporters of the old regime. And throughout the period since 2011 up until now, events in Egypt have 
there has been some violence, but not a large amount, unlike you know Syria, where uh, 100,000 people have died, or in Bahrain, where there were large amounts of crackdowns, uh, or in Libya, where there was a civil war. In Egypt, events remain generally peaceful. And for a period, the military council, Supreme uh, Council of the Armed Forces, ruled and then handed power over to, with new elections, to uh, President Morsi, who is from the Muslim Brotherhood group, um, which is a very old, uh, it's social movement, it's more than a political party. It's, it has a lot of different aspects to it. But uh, they formed uh, the Freedom and Justice Party in Egypt, mm -hmm. and President Morsi was elected uh, in the second round. They had a two-round election system in which the first round there was no candidate that got a majority of votes. And so the top two candidates, uh, Morsi and a member of the old regime, uh, Shafiq, were in the second round. And so voters were faced with the choice of either someone from the old regime or the Muslim Brotherhood group, which... And what are the core beliefs in the Muslim Brotherhood group? Well, the Muslim Brotherhood group uh, is... It was founded in the 1920s, and it is a social reform movement that is trying to rebuild uh, Egyptian and Arab uh, Arab society and other Arab countries from the bottom up. Mm -hmm. Its ideas, it's a, generally a religious but not a fundamentalist group, and they generally focus on community action, and they have a fairly conservative worldview. Um, so in a lot of ways, there's a lot of similarities between the Muslim Brotherhood and, say, in the United States, some kind of evangelical Christian groups. Admittedly, mm -hmm. beliefs are slightly different, but in similar format of trying to reform hearts and minds, and that should lead to political changes later that will lead to more moral politics. Okay. Um, and the Muslim Brotherhood, since its founding, had uh, been persecuted. Uh, and gone underground for many years, come up above, and has consistently participated in politics of trying to reform society and trying to reform the political system to be following uh, Islamic ideas better. Um, and so since they were one of the few groups that existed before, and despite their persecution, or perhaps because of their persecution, they had a fairly good sense of organization. And so once the changes happened in, in 2011, they were able to emerge above ground and use that organization to kind of get out the vote. Um, as compared to a lot of other groups, uh, secular groups, labor groups, um, or other uh, Salafi Islamist groups, or kind of more fundamentalist groups. Um, and all those groups were much less organized. Uh, and so they weren't unable to kind of mobilize their voters as well. Um, and so in that presidential election of 2012, uh, basically a lot of voters in the second round were faced with a choice of, they didn't like the old regime and they didn't like the Muslim Brotherhood but they really didn't have any other choice because their preferred candidates didn't come in, in in the top two places. And that led a lot of people who supported the revolution in 2011 to then vote for the Morsi because it was going to be a, a 
change as, com- as compared to going back to the old old president s- system. Okay. And Morsi, what, I mean, why were they so upset with him, I guess you can say, and why did they choose <laughs> to oust him? Well, over the past year, um, despite the fact that he was elected with not very much of a majority, um, he acted as if, once he was elected, that, well, you elected me, and I ha- we have all the power now. So he viewed his mandate um, as being kind of a very strong mandate when, in fact, actually it wasn't very strong at all. And so partly because of this is how the old regime worked, of we've been elected and we now rule. And so the Muslim Brotherhood kind of did the same thing. So there's a lot of continuity in style from the old regime to the new regime. And that led to the fact that the parliament also had a Muslim Brotherhood majority, but then the courts um, annulled the elections for the lower house of parliament. Mm -hmm. The upper house of parliament, which was elected with a very, very low voter turnout, uh, was able to stay in power. The courts did not reject on how it was elected. And so the Muslim Brotherhood and its allies had a majority there. And so the President Morsi in December of last year had uh, a group that was writing the Constitution that a lot of other opposition groups had pulled out of. And so really it was only the Muslim Brotherhood and their allies who wrote the Constitution, and it wasn't terribly popular. And the it was kind of rammed through this upper house of parliament, approved and then just decreed without any real popular support. And so this was the major uh, issue that was driving protests for the past six months. And the fact that the Muslim Brotherhood was not doing much about bringing figures from the old regime to justice. And most importantly, perhaps, is the fact that the Muslim Brotherhood was really unable to deal with the deteriorating economic situation. And so a situation that was bad in 2011, had gotten worse in 2012, was spiraling out of control downwards uh, this year. And so that was, you know, Egypt, Egypt was about to run out of foreign reserves. Um, it was having to make um, concessions to the IMF that were very unpopular, that would cut subsidies to the poor. And given that a lot of the people who joined the revolution in 2011 and now were coming from the poorer ranks of society, that their grievance is not political, but rather economic. Mm -hmm. Is that common then, where a lot of these protests in the conflict begins economically? Well, in, in general, there's often it's kind of hard to pull what is economic and what is political out of that. I mean, you know, you could say that protests around the world, um, in Brazil, in Chile, in Spain, in Occupy Wall Street, was it a political or was it an economic um, protest? And so uh, likewise in Egypt and a lot of the other uh, Arab Spring cases, that these political and economic demands get pushed together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so... These political misfires, the fact that while Morsi was democratically elected, he wasn't really governing like he was democratically. He wasn't open for consensus. He wasn't reaching out to other opposition groups. Um, He wasn't really listening to public demands. He was very 
tone deaf to what people had been demanding. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> tone um, deaf. And the fact that while Egypt is fairly homogeneous in terms of ethnicity, um, it is kind of split politically. And so Egypt's political scene is very kind of factionalized today. And so there's a Muslim Brotherhood, there's the Salafi Islamists, there's uh, more secular groups, there's labor groups, there's supporters of the old regime, um, Coptic Christians are the kind of main minority, and felt especially that uh, the Muslim Brotherhood and their allies were not treating them well. Uh, and so all of these different groups, um, the Muslim Brotherhood was ruling as if none of these other groups mattered anymore, wasn't reaching out to them. And so this kind of fueled discontent that a group of organizers, uh, the Tamarad, or the rebel, uh, rebel group, um, were began organizing that they wanted to present signatures to ask President Morsi to step down and call for new elections. And their goal, and they f far surpassed their goal of getting signatures on a petition to do so. And President Morsi ignored this. And he didn't call for parliamentary elections because the lower house, like the House of Representatives of Egypt, had not been meeting. It would, had been dissolved. And so they could have, they were asking for the reinstatement of that. There were lots of things that President Morsi could have done to kind of reconcile with the opposition and chose not to. Mm -hmm. And this led to the um, protests the last couple of weeks that were even larger than the protests in, in February 2011. And the military, seeing this situation, stepped in. Now, the military says it's acting at the demands of the people, of the protesters. Um, but on the other hand, the military also has a vested interest in staying in politics mm -hmm. as well. And so there's a lot of debate about if what has happened over the past week is a coup or not. And what is your thought on that? Well, it's, it's complicated because technically it is a coup. Mm -hmm. Uh, the, the military stepped in, removed the uh, leaders of the country, and replaced them with another one by force. Um, but on the other hand, it's a very popularly supported coup. <laughs> um, and just because it's a, the military has stepped into politics doesn't make it the outcome non-democratic. The process is not democratic. It's not following the Constitution that was written. Uh, in fact, the military government has now uh, put suspended that 2012 constitution, and they issued a decree yesterday that it um, is going to set up a process for amending that. Mm. Um, and then those amendments will come back to the people uh, for reconsideration, and that they'll after that constitution has been amended, then there will be no parliamentary and then eventually new presidential elections. But the issue about whether it's a coup or not has a lot of is very important in that the people can view it. If it's a coup, it's not legitimate. Mm. But the popular protesters say it's legitimate because the people demanded it. Um, whereas it, for the Muslim Brotherhood and its supporters, it, that it's a coup meant that it's illegitimate. 
And this has an impact on kind of how people view the events. But mm-hmm. it also, in international terms, has another dimension to that. Is, for example, the United States uh, military assistant military assistance rules uh, dictate that um, if a country that is receiving U.S. military aid, the military launches a coup, the United States has to suspend that military aid to that country. And so technically, the United States probably is in a position where it could suspend military aid to the Egyptian military if it's chosen that it was a military coup. Do you know when it will be determined? <laughs> um, the Obama administration is studying okay. this. And because on one hand, it really wasn't enamored with the Muslim Brotherhood government. On the other hand, it sets a really bad precedent. If the United States says this is a coup and that's not a coup, the United States is very open for being hypocritical on that it can label something going on in Syria as bad, and then the same thing happens in Egypt, and that's okay. Um, So lots of people would label that inconsistent. The European Union also has uh, similar types of rules in place. Um, That the military quickly appointed an interim president and is appointing a civilian cabinet may be enough window dressing for uh, the military in Egypt that the United States probably could say, well, they handed power over mm-hmm. immediately. It Just because the military has intervened in politics doesn't automatically mean it turns into a dictatorship. But it, what it does do is insert this kind of role of violence. And that's where we're also seeing today um, in Egypt that the military wasn't just removing President Morsi from power, but yesterday, for example, uh, protesters in front of the military barracks in which President Morsi is probably being held in detention. Uh, military authorities fired and killed probably, I think it's about 54 people yesterday. And that's actually the largest episode of violence since January 2011. So on one hand, you know, that that level of violence hasn't been that large up until this point is a good thing. But it's not a good thing uh, in looking forward that that type of violence, that, that type of violence isn't going to be forgotten. Um, you know, and when 54 people are killed in one episode, uh, the military says that its um, soldiers were attacked by armed groups. The protesters said that there were, weren't any armed groups and that the military just fired on them. And uh, it may be a long time before we ever get you know, the real details of that. But the basic point is, is that now the Muslim Brotherhood feels doubly aggrieved. Its you know, president was removed from power in a way that they view as totally unfair. And now their supporters are you know, being killed in the streets. Mm-hmm. So how will this affect other countries in the European Union and how will it affect America? Well, I think um, I think the key aspect is uh, in for the United States is it's looking at kind of the key strategic interests of the United States, um, and the Obama administration has been very, on one hand, cautious. On the other hand, it kind of has also seemed to let things kind of roll. Uh, the United States really does not want to be seen as micromanaging things in Egypt, even though whatever the United States does, it will be seen as micromanaging things in Egypt. 
uh, a lot of the protesters uh, viewed the United States as supporting the Muslim Brotherhood government because it didn't say too much when uh, the uh, Constitution was kind of rammed through, um, or it's you know it didn't uh, suspend aid when uh, the government uh, cracked down on NGO workers, and so. A lot of the protesters viewed the United States as complicit with the Muslim Brotherhood government. Now other groups will see, well, hold it, wait, the military is doing what the United States wants. So there's a lot of, the United States is trying to be very careful in not micromanaging things. And in a lot of ways, that's probably wise because in the end, the United States really has very little control over what happens. It has leverage. But it's, that leverage is usually in the form of military aid, and that's a pretty blunt instrument, and it's not going to be able to get fine-tuned um, uh, results from either cutting off aid or giving aid. Uh, and so the United States really can't control what goes on in the ground, but it can push parties to, you know, say, not fire on unarmed protesters, and that may actually lead the United States to cut back on its military aid, if not cut it off entirely. But the main key is that the United States is interested in a handful of things. The first one is, is that Egypt, in 1979, signed a peace treaty with Israel, and that is, I think, the United States' primary interest. Secondly, the United States wants to keep the Suez Canal open and oil shipments flowing through it. Um, not that any Egyptian government would kind of, you know, cut its nose to spite its face and close the canal, because that would be the last <laughs> source of revenue that it has. Um, but political instability does kind of make oil markets unhappy. And finally, the United States, you know, is uh, worried about uh, terrorism, especially Islamic terrorism, um, and that the events in Egypt not lead to more of that. And so those are the key things that the United States is interested in. But I think in the broader Middle East, uh, the recent events um, have had a lot of impacts as well. And part, one of them is that for a country like Tunisia, which was also similarly going through similar situation as Egypt, this puts a real roadblock in bringing consensus. And I think the big issue here is that Coming out of Egypt, people have learned that if you don't like the election results, then you turn to the military and mass protests to proceed. And while there's more to democracy than elections, elections are an important part of democracy. And that's why a lot of people focus on getting the rules for elections right, because they have a big impact as to who rules. Mm -hmm. And so this may lead countries like Tunisia or Libya that are working into trying to build uh, more institutionalized politics that people will then turn to the streets and not to the ballot box. It also kind of legitimizes the role of violence again. Um, and not that the, what's going on in Syria, where there is basically a civil war going on, the regime can now claim, well, we crack down on people. They, your friend, you know, your friends in Egypt crack down on people. There's no difference between us and them, except maybe a few hundred thousand people. <laughs> um, but the basic point is, is that it, if the military government in Egypt continues to be, 
crack down on the Muslim Brotherhood violently instead of kind of saying, okay, we kicked your guy out of power, but now we want you to kind of figure out how we can make this work so this doesn't have to happen again, to bring some consensus. This, if that violence continues, then we are seeing that, you know, this is going to legitimize uh, more violence in the region. And that's, that is something that I think is concerning to the United States, to Europe, um, and to, you know, really the entire world, mm -hmm. that it, you know, once violence gets into kind of a system, it's, it's very easy to replicate that because people get aggrieved more severely than if they're just merely kind of denied power. Um, and so it's really important moving forward in Egypt that the process of rewriting the Constitution uh, be very inclusive, and some of the protesters uh, see that other groups don't. Um, and it's very important for the Muslim Brotherhood to want to feel that they can come back to the table. Um, because, you know, for the Muslim Brotherhood, participating in electoral politics is something they've done, but to commit fully to it uh, was something that the organization required a lot of thinking about and, you know, kind of changed how they had viewed the world. Mm -hmm. And now they've been told, no, actually, you, you know, sh even if you win, you can't participate. And that's, that's a bad lesson to learn. Right. Um, and so it, it's going to be a very difficult period in time, and it's become a lot more difficult because of the breakdown in trust between um, all of these different political groups in Egypt and uh, especially the military and the Muslim Brotherhood. You know, we do have to keep in mind, you know, the Arab Spring is part of a larger, you know, wave of discontent around the world. I mean, you know, you have protests in Brazil and in Russia and in uh, Spain and, you know, uh, and, you know, in groups in the United States and all around the world. Um, there are kind of these mass protests, and it's a lot of it has to do with kind of the way that economics are being restructured, that people feel that they don't have a political say in trying to resolve, you know, kind of the growing gaps between rich and poor. And so while the Arab world has its own specifics, there is a larger picture of what's going on mm -hmm. in the world um, and that this is part of. The problem is the seasonal metaphor of it, uh, you know, did refer to the fact of kind of the January to about May 2011 period as, you know, spring. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, people are coming back as, you know, is it, well, is it now winter? Is, you know, is it fall or, you know, it's a hot summer? <laughs> you know, the, you know the, the, the metaphor gets really tortured. Mm -hmm. um, I think that, you know, the, the Arab uprisings are, you know, part of, you know, larger, you know, protest movements, you know, Occupy, you know, Wall Street, mm -hmm. Occupy Gezi Square in Turkey, Occupy, you know, this or that, uh, that there are all of these protest movements. And so the Arab uprisings are also in, has, a, you know, kind of much more political angle in that the governments that they're often protesting have been much more dictatorial uh, than, you know, say the government of the United States or, or the, the government of, of Brazil. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much for your time. Oh, you're welcome. It's been my pleasure. Um, and, you know, w there will be some cl a number of classes that touch on these topics um, in, you know, various units around campus. I'm teaching the Global Studies in Arts and Humanities uh, 310 
in the spring of 14 semester on global justice and conflict, which will focus on issues uh, of in the Arab Spring of um, kind of both democracy and inequality and the role of protests and kind of the various voices that have emerged uh, in the Arab world on that. And your class will probably be changing as everything else changes well, this summer uh, yeah, and this fall. I'll, I'll have to make sure that I revise the syllabus <laughs> in January to uh, reflect what's going on. Well, thank you again. Thank you. That was Marta Bagratuni and her drummer, Eric. Marta is a local cellist in East Lansing, and she joins us on the show to talk about her music, her inspiration, and her upcoming travels. So Marta, talk to us about your music. How did you get interested in the cello? Well, it sort of happened um, because my parents are both cellists. I come from a musical family, so it was it's kind of in my blood. I mean, definitely in my blood. So I started on that and um, because I always wanted to be but part of what my parents were doing you know they were practicing and I was just sort of sitting around being a little kid and I was like oh I want to do that don't leave me out of it so then finally I got a cello and then I started learning so I was four years old when I got my first cello yeah that's bigger than you (laughs) at the time it wasn't because you can get smaller sizes like they have up to a 16th size cello which is like the size of a like a viola or like a it's, it's really cute. It sounds awful, but it's really cute. <laughs> and Eric, how'd you get into drumming <clears throat> and other musical as or aspects that you practice? I just always liked music since I was a little kid. I was always like dancing around and and hitting things and singing. So my mom I think, <laughs> gave me a drum when I was young. <clears throat> was it a pot and a pan, and you were just going? Yeah, I mean it was that kind of stuff at first, and then at school it was like on the desks, you know, driving teachers crazy, and then just kind of progressed. I started getting more interested in world music and mm. jazz and stuff like that. So. Very nice. And so how would you describe your music? Because cello is very different, you mm-hmm. know, and I guess with a drum combo as well, whereas kids these days, you know, they have their rap, they have their rock music, they have their hip-hop. So how would you describe your music? <clears throat> well, 
cello is a very it's it's sort of an ambient instrument it's a very moody instrument too it's like the kind of instrument i like to play when i'm sad sometimes and you know i you sort of find yourself hearing like bits of cello when you're like you know thinking about something or so, something like because the sound is so mellow and so deep and rich and you can create lots of different sounds on it um i mean it's mostly based in the classical tradition which is wonderful because i think all inst all modern instruments now are based in the classical tradition but <clears throat> i've been used to playing classical music um but now I'm sort of exploring a lot of different stuff, singing a little bit more contemporary stuff and trying to play some contemporary stuff. But I feel like it's important to update some some sort of older styles because, you know, like what we're doing right now is we're going to play some Bach for you. And um, the uh, Bach was inspired by the dances of his time. So, like, if you can imagine, they're, they're a little bit stiff, you know, <laughs> compared to what we do now, you know. But um, so I wanted to sort of see, like, well, I can't really hear the dance in this. So I, wanted, I asked Eric, and I was like, Eric, let's see if we can hear some dancing in this. So I asked some, him to bring some percussion, and we'll see, yeah. So, I mean, you can do anything you want with the cello. You might it's, be dancing later then. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it has the um, range of a human voice, so if you think, like... The deepest baritone, like this, these guys were like singing like this, <laughs> and then you have you have these women who sing really, really high. The cello encompasses the whole range of the human voice, which is something I really love too. Mm -hmm. And what inspires you, you know, to pick your different music or even write your own if you do sometimes? Yeah, I have been writing my own now recently because I want to sort of create stuff too. Mm -hmm. I mean, playing something that that somebody has written is is creating in a way, but not really showing what you have. But um. Just, you know, if I hear a piece and, and it's really wonderful and I'm like, oh, my gosh, I want to play it, then then I pick it up and learn it. Um, but honestly, if, if I just really love something, then I want to learn it, mm -hmm. you know, whether or not it's on my cello and it's singing or whatever. You can do anything with music. That's just what I love about it. And you want to take this, you know, your love for music and your talent for music and run with it. I hear you're Absolutely. moving to New York. Tell yeah, us about that. I mean, it's just... You know, it's just something that I just dream. Everybody dreams about it. You know, I went through a period where I was like, I love, I want to go out, I want to leave, you know, and then I was like, oh, New York's not that cool. It's too loud, blah, blah, blah. People are mean. But now I'm in the stage again where I'm just like, wow, New York is amazing. And, um, well, it's just because I, I, there's so much stuff to do. There's so many niches you can find, or niche, I don't know, however you pronounce it. <laughs> and with any kind of music, so whatever I find that I really love, I'll probably involve myself with. But, um, yeah, that's what I want to do because I've been planning my whole life for the past, I don't know, I can ha like 10 years I've had a plan. And so I want to sort of just do whatever mm -hmm. and see what inspires me. So what is your dream in the music world? <clears throat> oh, my dream is to make music I love. And any venue, any place? Any venue, anywhere. I just, I mean, that's what we're doing now, right? I mean, that's why we don't have normal jobs. <laughs> it's because we just, we're just so, like... Enthralled, enthralled. by it. We just can't think about anything else. You know, we're just obsessed. It's like our religion. It's a love that's what affair. we do. Music is our religion. And so. Eric, how about you? What's your dream <clears throat> in the music world? I think just the same as, like she said, in any musician who really loves music, just to be able to do it, you know, just to 
be able to continue to grow and create and learn, you know, and to be able to um, collaborate with other artists and, you know, kind of have a vision and then realize it and be able to share it oh, with absolutely. other people, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And what will you guys be playing with us or for us today? Well, we're going to be playing two movements from a box suite. Mm-hmm. And this is actually unlike what um, Eric does. I don't know. I, I'm sort of like, I, I'm trying to convince him. I'm like, <laughs> will you please play this with me, this Bach? I know it's Bach, but you'll love it. Trust me. Uh-huh. You know, so we're going to play some Bach, but um, I'm also going to sing a little bit too. So Okay. Without further ado. That was Marta and Eric. We will have one more song by the duo to end the show. Now, a couple months ago, we talked to A2B Bike Share, which is a company started by two University of Michigan students. Recently, I found out that they were coming to Lansing to start a pilot bike sharing program. I spoke with them about this program. A2B Bike Share is really addressing the need of the market for a bike sharing system that's affordable, but has a rich feature set, and it's really scalable. How does it operate? How our system operates is very different from all the other systems on the market. To give you some background, there's some current systems, the well-established players, B-Cycle, Bixie, where you walk up to a kiosk, basically like an e-park machine, pay, and then it is, a bike is dispensed to you. You also have some new startups that are coming into space where you text in for a code and enter that into a keypad or something like that on the bike, and the bike then unlocks and you're on your way. For our bikes, we actually have a touchscreen on the bike itself. So this really creates a very simple rental experience. You walk up, type in your information. Once you're approved, the bike unlocks from our dumb rack, and you're on your way. And how, how long has this been operating? This is still in the prototype phase. We're about to be launching with the Ann Arbor Google office, one bike um, to serve really as a proof of concept. We're then working um, right now to take that prototype into something that's commercially ready, and then do a 15 to 30 bike test system sometime this fall. And would the bikes be all across campus? So currently we're talking to you know several different cities and locations about who would be interested in hosting that. We are talking currently in Lansing, and MSU might be part of that in some way. For instance, if I was just running late for a class and needed a bike you know, really quickly, is that something I could access, or is it something that you have to plan in advance? So absolutely. For... Uh, students, it would be really easy to use. All you'd have to do is walk up, tap on the screen, and then it would approve you, and you'd be able to go on your way. Wow. So, 
Oh, go ahead. Yeah. And then we do offer, you know, several, um, a website and then mobile apps for Android and iPhone to help you locate what that closest bike is to you. And how did the idea start for this project or this business, I guess? Yeah. So um, basically, it started out in a University of Michigan entrepreneurial class where we were um, basically had to come up with a new idea. And we started looking at bike sharing because we asked a simple question, why isn't it? you know, in Ann Arbor, Lansing, Detroit, you know, across the Midwest, really, when it does offer a lot of great benefits. And what we quickly found out is that the systems on the market were too expensive. And, you know, their operations also were losing money. So when we looked at this, we saw that there were some key problems that the rack, for example, makes up 80% of that cost. And those type of things could be eliminated and improved. So we just started working on the project, talking to customers, and we came up with our current concept. And how has the response been so far? It's been good so far because during this whole process, we've been going out and talking to people, really designing a bike-sharing system they want. And each time we show them, you know, we keep improving our system. And overall, we get the response of, this is really cool. When can I have it? When can I use it? So we're excited. Speaking in the future, what are your goals? Moving into the future, I did mention the um, 15 to 30 bike test is coming fall. And after that, we really want that to serve as validation that our system works on a larger scale. And then from there, start selling to communities where it's, you know, 300 bike systems, 1,000 bike systems, and really start growing from this region out into the country. And Lansing is one of those places, even though we're your big rivals? Uh, Absolutely. You know, um, (laughs) Lansing is a great community. And Who knows, it might end up being that Lansing is that first city that we go into, which would be really exciting. I think so, yes. Um, Now, what other, I guess, have there been other areas, either in Michigan or across the country, that have really thrived with this program? Um, The best example of that would be D.C. They have currently the largest system, I believe. New York right now is about to be putting in a 10,000 bike system as well. Uh, If you were looking for more of a small-town scale, uh, Madison and has had a really successful system, too, even though, you know, they have the cold weather and all. <laughs> so it just bike sharing isn't just limited to those areas that say warm and sunny year round. So do you have plans after graduation? Or are you going to try to stick with this as a business? I would love to be able to continue working on this. You know, obviously, we got to keep moving forward and making progress. But if we can keep doing that, I want to be working on this. And what left do you have to do to really solidify that it's ready to go in the fall? Um, I mean, it's, it's small technical improvements. Just, you know, there's a little bit of, there's some things you have to do to turn something that's a prototype into something that's going to be robust and last for five years. So we're really working through that process right now. But with the team we've got in place, I'm confident we'll be able to do that. And will you have different types of bikes or will it be a universal bike across the board? So it's a universal bike, uh, the seat's adjustable, it's a step-through frame, so it really accommodates all sizes. All right. Well, do you have anything else you'd like to add? The cool part about the system, too, is that it's completely powered uh, by a solar panel on the back rack of the bicycle. So each unit is completely separate, uh, self-contained. You don't have to run power through your community or anything like that. So it makes implementation easy and you know, an even greener solution. Um, it's always interesting whenever we're showing off the bike, that's usually one of the first things people notice. We say, 
look on it and it says, you know, is that a solar panel? You know, what's going on here? So I'm picturing this big super bike, you know, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> that flies. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. Good luck with the project. We look forward to hearing it and maybe seeing it on campus. Oh, yeah. Thank you very much. Now, A2B will release a system of 20 smart bikes and 40 dumb racks in Lansing on August 4th. Hello, hello, sou eu, morrendo de saudades de você. Quero dizer, quero dizer que não posso mais sofrer. Se eu errei, fui castigado, assim que não pude ser longe de você, abandonado, longe de você. Abandonado, alô, alô Alô, alô, sou eu Morrendo de saudade de você Quero dizer, quero dizer Que não posso mais sofrer Se eu errei, fui castigado Assim que não pode ser longe de você Abandonado Pelas ruas da cidade Três dias de saudade Meu, o peito suportou Agora vida sua voz Eu sinto que entre nós tudo recomeçou Alô, 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 alô Sou eu Morrendo de saudades de você Quero dizer, quero dizer Que não posso mais sofrer Se eu errei, fui castigado Assim que não pude ser Longe de você Abandonado, longe de você Abandonado, longe de você Abandonado Hello? Okay. And again, that was Marta and Eric. Marta also has a little update on her next venue. So this Sunday, um, I'm having a CD release party. It's uh, sponsored by the Arts Council of Greater Lansing, and it's for my Kickstarter-funded CD called Pieces of the World. It's mostly classical cello, and I sing on it too. And um, it's at 6 to 8 p.m. at the Avenue Cafe, 2021 East Michigan Avenue, Lansing. And we're going to have live music. There's going to be drinks. I'm going to premiere a classical music video. (laughs) And um, we'll have... A wonderful art prints available, and CDs will also be available for purchase. So, thank you. This is Marta Bagratuni, and... This is Eric Daw, and you're, and you're listening, listening to, to The Impact... <laughs> <laughs> Let's just leave it. <laughs> and that is all we have for you tonight on Exposure. I hope you have a lovely week full of sunshine and common ground music. And to end the show, I will leave you with a little bit more of a sneak preview for Common Ground Music Festival. Special thanks to our station manager, Sam Riddle, and our general manager, Ed Glazer. Keeping you informed and bidding you farewell until next week, I'm Abby Newton, Impact Exposure 89FM.
Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure.